Hey everyone, welcome back to an exciting episode of Property Soup. Today we've got part two of mortgage elimination, the really enjoyable part of it. Last week, for context, we look into the simple steps everyone can take, the low-hanging fruit to start shortening your mortgage. Today, we look into the specific strategies to help you get it down to 10 years or less. So my name is John Staggs, property strategist for Access Wealth. Hey guys, Alan here from Foundation Property. And yeah, today, as I mentioned, going to be a really exciting, very, very impactful episode. So let's dive right into it. So I think probably the best way to kick off is a quick recap from last week, and then we can dive into this week. Yeah, so I guess a pretty simple summary from last week, well, from last episode, I should say, depending on when you've listened to it. So last episode, we really dived into some of the simple mechanics that anyone with a mortgage can take advantage of, particularly if you look at your balance, see it's diminishing very slowly, that you're making a lot of payments, but watching your balance really slip down uh, very incrementally over time. How can we take a bit more control of that? So the simple steps we outlined primarily were optimization of finance, utilizing an offset account wherever possible, uh, utilizing frequency of payments. So if you have the ability to, with a weekly or fortnightly pay cycle, get more deposits into your offset account um, to really pay it down that way. And then thirdly, as you mentioned, Alan, to have all of your pay going into that offset account. Typically, most offset accounts are also linked to a credit card. Uh, using that to diminish our uh, interest balance on our mortgage as much as possible over time. So that were the primary key steps we went to. What's what's next, Alan? So once we've done that, what do we do from here? Yeah, well, look, we really wanted to dive into part two of this because part one last episode was really, like as you said, John, like very low-hanging fruit. It will help you pay off your mortgage sooner. Um, but if you really want to get better gains and, and really smash down that mortgage so you do create that freedom um, in your life and you know you don't have the stress of a mortgage every mortgage payments every month, there are other, other strategies um, and it goes a step beyond that because you know all the stuff we looked at last week will help. Um, you definitely need to employ those strategies. but at the end of the day, if you've, you've only, knocked off five years, well, that's more than most people. But what if you could knock off 10, 15, 20 years off your mortgage? What if you could pay it off in 10 to 15 years from now? And so that's what we wanted to dive into a little bit today and speak about how actually leveraging and getting into more property. It's it's a little bit counterintuitive, right, John? Um, the thought of taking on more debt, taking on more properties, it's very counterintuitive. Most people immediately have this uh, immediate fear that, oh, oh wow, that sounds scary. I've already got a mortgage. If I get more debt and more, um, you know, loans on property, that sounds like a scary thing. But in actual fact, if you do it correctly, it'll get you miles ahead, like years and years, decades ahead of where you would have been. And it, will, it can create um, the freedom that you're looking for. So yeah, we wanted to dive into that today. Yeah, well, one of the things you said, right? Um, chasing more gains. You know, as someone who's very much a meathead for me, that that uh, that sounds excellent. You know, sounds just like bigger biceps. I can has, please. So, yeah, that's um, that's something I'm all about. I think you're right that the the inborn fear most people have is the concept of taking on another big debt seems really scary. So, really breaking down the concept of good debt and bad debt as to why that could be something that really improves your life. Um, I think is something for us to to maybe explore a little bit. Um, so I'm sure you well, have a lot of thoughts there. My first, the first thing that came to mind was we spoke about last week how um, your income is not very tax efficient. So for most people who are employed, 
who have a, you know, on PAYG, they've got a job. Um, business owners, they've got a little bit more room to kind of play with their tax and be more tax efficient. But employees pay the highest, some of the highest taxes uh, out of anyone. Um, you know, somebody on $180,000 income, you know, 60, what is it, 60 to $70,000, maybe even more would be going straight to tax. That's a lot of wasted money. So my first thought was coming back to last episode was most people think the best way to pay down their mortgage is just throw more money at it. If you look at that, if you take, you know, $1, you know, you're getting taxed maybe 45 cents out of that dollar and you put 55 cents into your mortgage, well, that 45 cents is being wasted. So the first thing that came to my mind uh, was, you know, as when you become a property investor, you become more efficient with those numbers. So rather than throwing away 45 cents, maybe you're only throwing away uh, 35 cents. And the more you stack it, the more property or the more assets you acquire, the more tax efficient you become actually. Um, so that's kind of step one is that you can, you, you can um, become more tax efficient by becoming an investor because you get some, some incentives from the government for investing in property. Yeah, and I think it's a twofold thought process as well. So you're right that for a lot of people, uh, particularly for us with very traditional conservative Asian families, the the thought process is you just pay more, right? You just you just um, you go without, you tighten the belt, you save harder. Um, so that's that I think is something people have been taught traditionally. And if we look at the the simple numbers historically, okay, back in the day that might have made sense when properties were three times the the cost of the average income. Today, when we're talking typically seven to 10 times, that just doesn't really work, right? So that's one thing to consider. Um, but as you mentioned, Alan, so there's definitely the tax efficiency side of it. Um, if we can actually get some of the money that we're paying in tax anyway to pay for an investment, well, it's just working towards our future, which absolutely helps. The other part of that, though, is let's pretend you were thinking about just throwing your, your post-tax income um, at your own home mortgage. At some point, that's going to entail a level of sacrifice. Now, you've then got to start making some pretty hard choices. You know, do we pay this extra 10,000 bucks a year towards our mortgage or do we put one of the kids in a private school, right? Now, if we look at most people over the course of a lifetime and they've got to make an, enough of those hard decisions, it's very tough to stick with just paying into the mortgage. So there is that other really practical consideration as well. Um, we'll leave that to the side for now. I think the, the real benefit of today's episode is for us to get into some of those tax efficiencies and help people um, understand why that's so useful um, because it means that ultimately, if you leverage that, if we weren't getting that money, we're paying into tax anyway, we can actually still keep our lifestyle um, and keep our family's lifestyle as good as possible while we build for our future. Yeah. And um, if we go high level as well, like we just take a few, we kind of just zoom out, you know, take a helicopter view of things. W one of the reasons that a lot of people don't get into property investing is the, like we mentioned earlier, is the fear of more debt. Um, so I think it's really important that we dive into the difference between good debt and bad debt. Why don't we just touch on that a little bit? Uh, what, what's your understanding of, for the listeners out there, John, that don't know the difference between the two, what, what is good debt and what is bad debt? Yeah. So if we look at it in really simple terms, bad debt is debt that you have to pay for from your income entirely that you know, if it gets even worse is on an asset that either doesn't grow or depreciates. So that at the far end of the spectrum is the really the worst definition of bad debt. Now, if you 
On top of that, if you have no tax deductions, that's the worst yeah. debt. Give us some. Give us a few examples of bad debt. Sure. So, relatively bad example would be a car loan. That's probably the the one most people can relate to. So, virtually everyone knows that until a car be, you know, reaches vintage status, we're we're going to see that asset depreciate over time. So, if you buy a brand new car, you drive it out the lot. I don't think anyone's particularly shocked to learn that we lose about a third of its value straight away, right? So we've got that typical classically depreciating asset. So if we take out a loan for a vehicle, let's, let's uh, well, industry standard is typically around about five years within the, the motor trade, right? So we take out a five-year vehicle loan. Um, we've got, let's say, a $600 a month payment for that car. However, as soon as we've driven it off the lot, it starts depreciating, depreciating, depreciating straight away, right? Five years down the line, we're lucky if we get a third of the original value for the car if we sell or trade it in. So at that point, this is the definition of a bad debt. We've we basically poured our money down a hole. Yeah, I would say that's not a bad example at all. I would say that's one of the best examples, John, because um, think about it like this, right? A lot of people will happily take out a car loan. They don't even think twice about it. They think, I need a new car. I want to get a nice car, and I'm happy to pay, you know, Two hundred to three hundred dollars a week to own that car, to own it. Well, actually, you're taking out a debt on that car. Now, when you you know, let's let's calculate at two fifty a week, right? Let's say you get a, a like a decent car. I don't know. Let's pick a number. Two hundred dollars a week. That's around ten thousand dollars a year. That's costing you in repayments, right? And this is a classic example of bad debt. When you purchase that car, like you said, John. As soon as you drive it off the lot, it's lost value. And actually, over that 10-year period, like over a five-year period, let's say you've got a five to seven-year loan, let's pick five years, how much is that car worth at the end of five years? Well, it's worth much less. So the value of that asset, that vehicle, has gone down. You're actually getting poorer by holding that asset, whereas property is in short supply. The property market's always growing because of population growth. If you held a property at that same time and it cost you the same amount, $10,000 a year in negative cash flow, and with that's, we're talking a pretty bad property there, right? That's not an ideal property, but it's costing you the same amount as a car. But what is the value of that property after five years? That's probably going to be worth two to $300,000 more if you pick just an average market. And that's, that's the difference between good debt and bad debt, um, which most people don't understand is they're quite happy to go and take out bad debt and have it affect their lifestyle. But when it actually comes to creating wealth and, and acquiring assets that are actually going to get them ahead in life, for some reason, it's, it's scary. So that first of all, I think that was a great example, John. Car debt, bad debt. Investment property, good debt. It's creating wealth for you. It's getting you ahead. It's actually creating money and wealth, whereas a car is actually making you poorer over time. Absolutely. I think we also need to nuance the thought of home ownership as well, because a lot of people really do think of the principal home where we live as a good debt. And one of the concepts we were both exposed to a long time back through a good old Mr. Robert Kiyosaki is the concept of your principal home actually still being bad debt, uh, which I think will blow a lot of people's minds, especially in Australia, where we do see that yes, our home does keep going up in value for the most part. If you live in, particularly in a capital city, um, where we've got plenty of population, uh, plenty of plenty of, um, of migrants coming in, low supply, um, you probably will see your home value going up each year. Um, but one thing that Robert stated um, in his original book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I agree with completely, 
is that ultimately the debt on your principal home is still a bad debt. Um, would you agree with that, Alan? And, and why would you agree if you do? I, I agree. Well, why do you think it's still bad debt? It's really simple. Can you eat the walls? Theoretically, but you know, fibro is not fiber, right? So <laughs> I, I, I struggle to think of what might come out of you if you did. No, we, I mean, unless um, unless you're some form of medical marvel, unfortunately, we can't eat the walls. Um, we can't live off income from the home. So does the home grow in its inherent value if we sell it? Absolutely, right? However, that's on the proviso that we do sell it. So in the meantime, it's not a revenue generating asset. So yeah, so that's the reason that even though... Yes, it may still grow over time. Um, ultimately, it is still a bad debt unless we've, we we understand and know that we're going to sell it at some point and go into something less value inherently. The way I like to look at the primary place of residence and I like to compare it versus uh, a rental property or an investment property that has income. Uh, and, and that's how you can see the difference between why your home is bad, considered bad debt in the kind of uh, Robert Kiyosaki perspective versus an investment property. Now, an investment property has income as, and it's got expenses because you've got a tenant in there. And right now there's a rental shortage. If you haven't heard, um, it's, it's very difficult not to find a tenant right now. Like people are just lining up to find a rental property, but uh, an investment property has income and it has expenses. So if you find the right kind of investment property, most of the expenses are actually covered by the income of the property. So what that means is that that investment property or that asset is taking care of itself in most cases. And, and as you hold it, it's kind of taking care of itself, right? All the expenses are taken care of, the management fees, rates, uh, even the interest payments, et cetera. All of those expenses are being taken care of. Meanwhile, what's happening to the value of that property? It's going up over time. Compare that to your... Uh, primary place of residence, it's also probably going to go up in value over time. But does it have an income? It doesn't. It relies on you paying the expenses of the property. So the investment property has expenses, your primary place of residence has expenses, but your investment has its own income and your primary place of residence does not. It requires you to work. And if you stop working for any reason or, you know, let's say you're a couple and one of you stops working, that's when you feel the stress because um, no one else is going to pay it. You have to pay it. And if you stop paying it, the bank's going to come away and take, come, come and take, you know, take away your home. So that for me, that's how I like to look at, you know, investment versus primary place of residence. Your investment can take care of itself, whereas your primary place of residence cannot. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of fallacies I think are worth working through, um, with I think that a lot of first-time investors really carry through as well. So the thought from a lot of people that I talk to, sometimes after the fact, sometimes before they consider doing it, is they think, okay, well, I'll just pay my home off first, then I'll start investing in property, right? Because I'll feel a lot safer to do it. So let's actually walk through mechanics of doing that, right? So let's pretend that to pay your home off faster, you've got to throw an extra one to $200 a week at the mortgage, right? Now, if you've optimized the absolute hell out of everything, if you've got an offset account, um, if you've structured the finance correctly, if you then start making these extra payments on top, you may get, get you know, as we went through last week, down to roughly about 20 years as opposed to 30. You know, all things being equal. And again, depending on your mortgage size and income levels, you might well push it down to 20 years being paid off, perhaps a bit less, right? 
Now, to do that, again, we're going to have to sacrifice from the budget. So we're talking about putting in at least an extra one to $200 a week, right? Now, let's compare that conversely to investing in property. Um, one of the things you mentioned, Alan, is that if we do find a good asset with a great income, can we have it hold itself at neutral or nil cost to us? Certainly very feasible, right? As interest rates come back down over time, will we be able to get positively cash flowed assets? Of course, right? But even if we look at the current market at the moment with reasonably high interest rates and big inverted commas, um, most of the investors I'm talking to today, when we actually examine the real holding costs of picking up an investment property, that holding cost is around about one to 200 bucks a week, right? Let's say it's 200 bucks as the worst case scenario. So the thought process is then what do we do? So do we put 200 bucks into our home, pay it off a bit quicker and have one asset that will grow in value? Or do we do the exact same thing and 10 years down the line now have two assets that have grown in value? Pretty simple. Would you rather have two or one for doing the exact same thing? That's a really good point. You could, a lot of people don't realize that they could actually be investing. They could be getting into the property market, could have a second asset and they be there would be no change to their lifestyle. So if they chose to put in some extra money into their mortgage every week, they could literally do that for an investment and they'd be way further ahead, way further. That, that could literally be the difference between them uh, paying off their mortgage in 20 years' time or 10 years' time. Which would you rather have? Um, just by that one move, basically. 100%. And this is where I think there's another fallacy that people often have when they consider property investing. And to be fair, some companies in our industry are somewhat responsible for this, for selling the dream. The thought that unless you're acquiring six, 10 or 15 properties, that you're not really a property investor and that you have to become this ultra wealthy mogul in order for it to be worthwhile, right? You can see some of, some of the uh, property investment companies out there. I don't, I don't like to talk, you know, say bad things about anyone. Um, I just don't believe in that. But, you know, there are a lot of kind of gurus out there saying, oh, you know, I built a property portfolio of 30 properties or 20 properties. When reality, the reality is you don't need to do that. Just one good investment property, just one, it can literally help you pay off your mortgage in around, you know, let's say between 10 to 15 years, 15 years, maybe kind of worst case. Yeah, being ultra conservative, but, but in 10 years. And it's very, very simple. The math is very simple. Okay. Let's say you had um, a $600,000 home and, and your mortgage was around $500,000. Now, if you acquired an investment property at the same time or close to close after purchasing your primary place of residence for around the same price, around $600,000, and you held those two properties for 10 years, the loan on your primary place of residence might be, let's say, 400 to 420, okay, more or less market averages, your home is probably going to be close, worth close to a million dollars after a 10-year period. At now, least. if you acquired a, an investment property at the same time and you were getting the same average market performance of around 6.8% every year in capital growth, your investment property would also be worth around a million dollars. And if you bought that investment property for $600,000, Okay, this is not factoring in capital gains tax, et cetera. But you'd have around three, maybe three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars in equity actually after tax, you know, 
we don't, we don't know exactly what the numbers are, but you'd have around three to four hundred thousand dollars in equity. Now that three hundred four thousand four hundred thousand dollars, if you had a four hundred thousand dollars mortgage on your home, what could you do with that money? You could put it onto your mortgage, and you could pretty much eliminate the mortgage. And we're not even talking about extra cash flow from the investment that could be helping you if if it was that type of property. So one property can make all the difference. And um, I just want to bring this up before I lose this train of thought is you mentioned, you know, a lot of people feel when we've paid off the home, then we'll start investing. Well, the problem with that, the problem with that strategy is you're relying on two things. You are relying on the, the fact that you think, well, not that you think, but you're, you're relying on the fact that I'm going to be able to work all the way till 65. And when the reality is that 30% of the population will not even make it till retirement, they're forced to leave the workforce, 30%, you know, just being made redundant or being forced out of the workforce. Okay. Now let's say you're a couple and you're 35 years old. Okay. And you waited, you put in those extra one to $200 a week and you do knock off 10 years off your mortgage. And it takes you 20 years to do that. So you don't pay it off in 30 years, you pay it off in 20 years. You're now 55 years old. You've got zero debt on your primary place of residence, massive achievement. And now you decide to start investing. Well, what's happened to property prices in that time? Over <laughs> 20 years, it's going to be... Over 20 years, they've, as a rule of thumb, they've gone up three and a half to four times the original values of what you would have seen over that 20-year yeah, period. It's going to be a lot harder to get into property investing. If you, know, if you think it's hard today, imagine in 20 years from now. And if property prices have increased, guess what else needs to increase? Your income needs to increase. So at 55 years old, do you want to be worrying about increasing your income and um, having maybe 10 years to invest? Or would you have rather kind of rewinded the clock and said, let's take it easy. Let's maybe get one investment at 35, maybe another one at 40, 45, and then just do it slowly over time and be more, be, take a more comfortable and a, and a slow journey rather than kind of rushing it at the end of your working life, if you can continue working till the age, past the age of 55. Absolutely. And look, I think for most people conceptually who are in the early stage of a mortgage, it's much easier for them to grasp it. Most of the people I talk to have real trouble with this idea and again, get caught in the big logical fallacy are the ones who are perhaps five or 10 years away from paying off the mortgage, right? Where they can see the finish line in sight. They think, ah, you know, I'll just, I'll stick with what I'm doing. It's worked for me up until now. I've got evidence this is this has worked to a degree for 10 years. So I'll just finish it off now for the last five or 10, right? Now, the logical fallacy that comes in here is the thought that if if I get the home paid off, I'll now be comfortable to invest, right? But it doesn't. So if we consider what someone will actually feel, so now when the home gets paid off, if they've now got to invest in a property, the next stage is an equity release, right? Which means going back into debt on the home, even though it's now good debt, it's acquiring us an asset, the thought of now being back in debt becomes scary again. So often what happens is the cycle of kicking the can down the road kicks in. No, we we feel bad about having debt back on the home. No, we just don't want to do that. Oh, we'll save the money instead, right? So now, again, as we're entering our 40s and 50s, we actually want to spend money on things such as travel, private school fees, living our life now that we're debt-free, having some experiences 
if we're going to do those things, do we really actually want to save aggressively? The answer for most people is a fuck no, right? So what happens is now this rate of savings gets dragged out and dragged out. We're lucky if we put away 10 years towards investment over the course of a year. Not that you aren't saving more than that, but in all likelihood, again, this is going on your lifestyle, probably a better car now that we've paid the home off, a whole bunch of other shit, right? And again, I love the other shit. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right? We are saying have your cake and eat it too. Let's just be a bit smarter about how we use our money, right? So, but again, this kick in the can and the road cycle continues. So eventually, perhaps in five or 10 years, we've now now built up the funds to invest in a property. But, you know, over a five or 10 year period, over the whole course of someone's life, is it likely that we've now experienced some risk, some adverse health effects, perhaps some family members who need some help in an emergency, one of the kids being older now needs help with a wedding or a deposit for a property? Is that cash going to go to them? Probably, right? So again, this idea that we wait for the comfortable moment, the perfect moment, keeps on happening to the point where suddenly we're 65 and we've done nothing, right? Happens to so many people. So yeah. again, one thing I've mentioned yeah, before- yeah, I think yeah. it just creeps up on people. Um, yeah. I think people have good intentions and, um, you know, uh, they keep thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about it. Yeah. But it just, you know, time slips away. Um, Waiting for perfect the, conditions is is yeah. such a trap. Well, you, well, look, you've got to prioritize it, you know. Uh, we've spoken about this many times before. If it's If it's important, everybody has the same amount of hours in the day. If it's important, you'll prioritize it. That's That's the end of it. That's the truth of it. But um, look, we've looked at things very high level um, and we've looked at a few scenarios. Let's now get into the mechanics. Like how does it work? Okay, so let's say somebody's listening and they go, right, um, I don't want to wait till I've paid off my home because I know that if I start earlier, I'll get the results sooner. Um, I'll do something now, uh, but I'm a little bit scared. Uh, I do have a mortgage on my first home and I'm a little bit scared about jumping into the market. Um, how, how does how does one start? How does somebody start getting into investing without um, and kind of pushing aside that fear? Or how do they? How do we lean into that fear and under, and understand how it works so that so to help understand that that fear it's not it's not real. Like you you can actually do it. You can do this, um, and you can do it safely. And it's gonna you'll thank yourself in 10 to 15 years from now. Like well, how does how does it work, the mechanics of investing and, you know, paying off the mortgage, using investing to actually pay off the mortgage sooner and getting debt-free on your home sooner? So in terms of the mechanics, uh, when we went through our 101 series, really the, the cash flow side of things, making sure that firstly, we've done a genuine cash flow analysis for the property we're looking to invest in, right? That includes factoring an equity release from our home as well, right? So again, in your example, Alan, we've got, you know, somebody who's got, uh, perhaps fifty, eighty thousand dollars of usable, usable equity to invest. How do we um, factor that, and then factor the rental income and tax deductions from this new property? Um, really covering that as well as our new investment loan for that property as well. So, first things first, knowing that is the cash flow manageable, right? Secondly, understanding in the area we're investing in, what are the likely rental vacancy rates? Um, once we've understood that risk and can quantify it, if we can actually afford two, maybe three weeks of vacancy per property per year. Um, and we can base it on data that's a realistic expectation. Um, how do we do that? So what you just mentioned, those first two things, what you're really talking about is cash flow. When you mentioned cash flow, what people are worried about is how do I afford a second mortgage? 
That's really what they're worrying about. So what we're saying is that it's different from your primary place of residence. That's number one. And they're two, they're th- the two things are connected. The, the first thing and the second thing you said, which is talking about vacancy rates. So f- the first thing is your primary, primary place of residence has expenses and the income is your income. It relies on your income to pay those expenses. And you're paying principal and interest and all the council rates and everything. And nothing is tax deductible on your primary place of residence. All of those expenses, you can't get any tax refund out of that. Now, very in very, very simple, very basic terms, when you've got an investment property, you've got uh, more debt, you've got another mortgage, but it's not really, in most cases, not coming out of your pocket. Why is that? Is because your second property, your investment property is not relying on your income directly. You're not going to work and then paying that the expenses of that investment property, such as the interest, management fees, council rates, et cetera, et cetera. It's not relying on your income to pay those expenses. Why is that? Because the investment property has its own income. It has rental income from its te- from the tenants you've got in that property. So think about it like, you know, there's two homes, you live in one home and you've got to pay the expenses of the other home. You own the second home, it's in your name, but you've also got tenants in that home and your tenants are paying all of your expenses. So it's very, very different debt from your primary place of residence. That's number one is it's scary, but it's really not that scary because somebody else is paying the expenses and you get the benefit. You get to hold the property. Somebody's paying that income and paying all the expenses and you get the benefit of holding that property and that property increasing value in value over time. You're, you're the one making the money. Okay. And the second point you brought across, John, which is a very, very real fear, which I hear every day. It's one of the most common questions I get is vacancy rates. So the vacancy rate simply is what is the percentage of time a group of properties in in an area is empty? So the the way it's worked out is how many properties are on the market for rental and how many are actually vacant? How many are still being advertised? So let's say if there's 100 properties and there's a vacancy rate of 1%, there's 100 properties on the market, but only one is available for rent, well, there's a 1% vacancy rate, which is very, very low. It means there's very, very limited supply, which comes to the second fear, which is, okay, if I do get an investment property, so with vacancy rates, the second fear people have is, okay, if I do get this investment property and I do understand there's a rental income, what happens if I don't have a tenant? Then who pays the expenses? Okay. So very, very simply, we don't have enough property in Australia. There are places where you can invest right now where you have a 0.01% vacancy rate. For every thousand properties, there's only one property vacant. Um, at you know worst case scenario, if your property was empty for let's say four weeks, let's say even eight weeks, two months, which is very rare these days. Um, But if it was empty for eight weeks, well, you just simply need to have enough buffer to make sure that you can cover that expense. So 500 times eight, um, what's 500 times eight, John? Help me out here because it's still early morning. $4,000, okay. That would be $4,000. 
Yeah, the, the, the typical recommendation we have for most people is to set up a buffer fund of ten dollars to $15,000, particularly if we're doing this from equity release. So if we look at most investors who are looking to acquire a new asset, um, having ten dollars to $15,000 sitting in the account fully offset, so we're paying zero interest on it, um, is just a simple way to make sure if anything does come up, we're good to go. You got to think of yourself as a kind of like a business owner, right? The business you're in is property investing. And just like any business, you've got to have some cash, cash buffer to cover your, it's no different from property investing. But if you had a, yeah, but if you had, uh, if you had 10, $15,000 buffer, you can comfortably, um, you know, weather, you know, six to eight weeks of vacancy in your, in, within your property. The likelihood of your property being empty in today's property market for many years from now, actually, the likelihood of it being vacant for eight weeks is extremely low. Yeah, incredibly low. Well, to, to give some context, the if we look at the absolute height of COVID for uh, Sydney and Melbourne CBD, postcodes that were extremely, extremely reliant on international student occupancy, they got to about eight weeks of vacancy per year average, right? The majority of suburbs yeah, simply did. Yeah, and I just did a quick calculation as well. So, uh, you know, two months vacancy out of the year is a 16% vacancy, 16%, okay, and most places in Australia have a 1% vacancy rate. So the, you know, you really, the likelihood of you not being able to find a tenant for two weeks and you having to fork out those expenses, it's, it's so low, it's almost non-existent. Well, if we think of it logically, if you cross the road multiple times per day, if you take a car to work multiple times you know, per day, in all likelihood, you have a higher likelihood of having a car accident at some point than you do of actually having vacancy go beyond two to four weeks, if we look at it in really simple terms, right? And again, if we look at long-term market averages, if we look at the vast majority of suburbs in Australia over time, their long-term rental vacancy rate is sat around sort of three and a half, four percent so again, about two weeks per year, uh, even on the higher side of places that still could be great places to invest, maybe they get to five, 6%, right? And even for that, personally, I wouldn't be, for a place that's seen that historically for brief periods, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be against ruling that, or I wouldn't immediately rule that out of investment potential as long as things are trending the right way now. So yeah, so if we break it down to those really simple numbers, the likelihood things are gonna go that bad is, is really probably not gonna happen. Um, so if we've got a 10 to 15 grand cash buffer from day one, we're set. I mean, how much lower does a risk curve need to get? In most cases, if you do invest incorrectly, it's, and you find the right property in the market with the right cash flow, it's going to be quite comfortable to hold that investment prop property, probably a little bit more comfortable than holding the expenses on your primary place of residence. So that's number one. No, you're right. The, the other thing that you're mentioning, so all those expenses on our investment are now tax deductible. Right, so that includes so the interest charges we pay now for that investment property, not principal, unfortunately, but the interest charges one hundred percent deductible. Uh, also includes our council rates, our water rates, our insurances, everything we spend. So pretty much any annual capital expense we've got. The only thing we really can't claim is our building insurance and our uh, original conveyancing fees to act, to acquire the property, um, just due to the ATO's rulings. But look, outside of that, virtually every other um, expense along with depreciation, which isn't a real world expense. However, on paper is still claimable every year we hold that asset up till 40 years. Yeah. So we still get the full benefit of that. Yeah. In very basic terms, you would get an income on the property. So you, you might get 
I don't know, $30,000 income on the property. You'll have a lot of expenses, could be 40000 but you also might have a tax refund of $10,000, which means more or less the property can take care of itself. But it really depends on the area of the property, so we won't get into those details. That'll be for a, a, another episode, or that's actually in Property Investing 101, if you want to go check out that episode. Um, so it really is dependent on the property. So, so I, think, I think conceptually, how do I do it, right? So uh, look, again, um, the 101 will give you the detailed breakdown, but let, let's consider the comparison this way. So the home where I live, who makes the payments? Me, 100%, right? Investment property, who makes the actual payments? So let's say there's $45,000 of expenses for me to hold my investment property, and I'm getting 30000 bucks in rent, right? So... Give or take, about two-thirds of the rent of, of the holding is covered by the rental income. However, $10,000 covered by my tax deductions. Cool. Now we've got 40 out of $45,000 covered by somebody else. I stick in 5000 bucks a year to keep it going. My expense to hold that investment, 100 bucks a week, right? That's really how it works in very simple terms. Over a 10-year period, is that asset likely to double? If we've done the research, probably, right? So... So that's how it works conceptually. Now, can you do the same thing with your personal home? Of course, but again, 100% of the income required to come from you, claim nothing on tax. So the mechanics are, are just much harder for you to actually hold a place where you live than it is to hold an investment nine so times out of 10. Then it becomes a case of, okay, now we know, now let's assume now we know we can comfortably hold the property, which means we can comfortably have all the expenses covered maybe we'll put a little bit in ourselves just a little bit and it won't affect that and we factor that worst case right so that if we have to we know we can um but if we don't have to because things have gotten better over time as we expect they will well happy days you know in that case we're good we've got the extra five thousand bucks so no yeah okay so we know it's it's not going to be the same as um having a mortgage in our own place of residence we know we can comfortably hold it then what how then Okay, we get the property, then how do we pay off the mortgage? How does it work? So like you mentioned, Alan, so this is the joys of capital growth, right? So I'll be a little bit more, I would say, not aggressive, but perhaps more realistic in my assumptions. Um, you were being ultra conservative before, working off roughly in your head about a 5% capital growth rate, right? I do like to be conservative. I generally yeah. do as well, but I also think, look, let's also just be real, right? Let's let's just call it like it is. So if we're assuming a 7% growth rate for properties, which again, by the way, is below the 63-year average, that sits at about 7.8% per annum, um, we assume a 7% growth rate on the properties we hold, right? We start with our 600K principal place of residence. We acquire a 600K investment, right? We hold the two for 10 years. At a 7% rate of growth, both assets are now worth roughly about $1.2 million, right? So here in year 10, we sell down our investment property, right? As you mentioned before, Alan, the balance we expect in our principal home, about 400,000 bucks. So on our investment property, we pay off our capital gains tax. Probably be some, it's hard to guess, but again, just in rough numbers, it'll probably be somewhere around about 250 to 300K, right? By the time we pay off our investment loan, still leaves us leaves us plenty of profit to now be completely debt-free on our principal residence. Leaves us a little bit of change as well, but let's forget about that. Let's just think in 10 years' time, from having done the exact same step we were thinking about before, paying an extra one to 200 bucks a week, right, into something. Instead of doing this over 20 years to get debt-free on the home, we've now done it in 10. Massive, huge. 
huge. You know, going back to that example of a third party couple, if they acquired two properties, that's literally the difference between them paying off their home at somewhere between the age of 55 and 60, but paying off their first home at the age of 45. Like, I mean, what a difference that could make to, you know, a family's life. Like, imagine getting it to age 45 and, you know, you've, you've done the right thing. 10 years earlier, you took the right steps. You got an investment property, held that property for 10 years. At the same time, you've held your primary place of residence. You comfortably held it. Maybe you had to put in, you know, three, four, five thousand $5,000 a year into that investment. But you've just generated so much equity, so much capital from capital gains, just simply the market growing in value that you are able to sell that investment, maybe net $400,000. In, you know, after all agents fees and capital gains tax, you're able to net $400,000 cash and you put that against your primary place of residence and you, you essentially eliminate the debt on your home. And at 45, you become debt free. Wow. Absolutely. And let's think of it in, in the, what it could do for your lifestyle, right? So most people I talk to today, their mortgage payment is somewhere in the order of about 3000 3200 a month, right? Let's use $3,000 a month as an average, right? That is now $36,000 in your back pocket, right? So let's pretend that you have a check in your hand. You can go to the bank today, pay your home off. You're done, dusted. Now you've got $36,000 of your hard-earned money back in your pocket. How would that genuinely change your life? And if we think about it for most people, the options, okay, if we've got two kids in private school, there's the fees well and truly covered plus a holiday, Right. The difference to your lifestyle is massive. Um, if one of the members of a couple wants to actually work part-time, cool. Now we can afford to do it. How much time does that give you to do other things you want to? Yeah, but I mean, just, you know, you talk about the, the, the monetary value of getting that cash back, but what about just the, the feeling, the emotional and mental, um, just being able to take that burden off you that we don't owe money to anyone every month now. This home that we live in, it's actually our home. Because remember, you may be signing a contract, you may be getting a loan on a house, and it may feel like you own that home, but you don't own it until it's paid off, which is 30, 35 years down the line for most people. So, until you fulfill the death yeah. So imagine that you actually own the home you live in, you don't have any debt, and it's actually yours. What a feeling. So. 100%, the feeling of pride and accomplishment from genuine home ownership, that's you know, massive, right? And the other thing, right, the, the lack of cognitive load. So if we think about most of us day to day, we carry around a level of stress, anxiety, and worry from the things that annoy us that we can't control, right? And that thought of what's going to happen when rates go up, where's my mortgage going to go to, right? Feeling at the mercy of the market, feeling at the mercy of banks, uh, that goes away, right? So before you even consider what you can do with the money you've gotten back and the time you've gotten back, the sheer alleviation of stress and anxiety, the ability to put that mental energy towards other things. Well, let's think of it this way. If that happened to you, do you think you'd be more or less present as a partner? Do you think you'd be a better or a worse parent? Um, do you think you'd enjoy your life more or less? Should be pretty fucking obvious, right? <laughs> so that that's essentially it. You know, you, you know, there's been, if we break it down and we summarize what we've just been talking about this whole episode, you just need to break it down to two simple parts. An investment property is good debt, number one. 
because it has its own income. It doesn't rely on you going to work to to cover the expenses. That's number one. Number two, you don't really need to worry about not having tenants because in Australia we have a housing shortage. Um, residential property, uh, you know, we had one of our other guests, Will, uh, we talked about commercial property um, and very, very different ball game. Very, very different. You know, you need to have a thick skin for that kind of investing. Residential investing is quite relatively safe because people need housing and we have a shortage. So the likelihood of you not having tenant, it's very low. Um, and so if you can make sure those things are covered, you've got an income on the property, you've got a tenant, that's where you're actually going to make money by holding a second property or a third property or a fourth property. If you're going to buy it at a specific price. Let's say you're going to buy it for $600,000. If you hold it for 10 years, um, you know, it could be worth $1.2 million and you've made a profit or you've made gains of five to $600,000. And after that 10 year period, you can sell down and you can literally smash that down on your home mortgage and it's gone. You've eliminated your debt in 10 years. Even if it took you 15 years, you've halved the time of your mortgage, you know, from 30 years to 15 years. And that's the basis of it. That's the basics is you're going to make money through capital gains. There are some also some other things you can do, which we can maybe get into, into on another episode is if, if the property is right, you're going to have enough cash flow as well. You might have some extra cash flow, which you can also put onto your mortgage, but we'll leave that for another episode, I think. Yes. Yeah, I think especially as rates come down, that'll be a strategy we should explore more and more because that'll be something we can lever into pretty pretty readily and it's going to happen quicker than people expect. So um, 100%, as we look at a long-term hold, which any property should be, or for most of them anyway, um, that's going to be a very viable strategy. But if there's one message I think I want people to take away from this, it's let's never let perfect be the enemy of progress, right? So in a perfect world, would I love it if, Tons and tons of people held two to three properties, maybe a bit more. Sure, because I believe that they can do it very safely. Um, I know that if they do that, their financial outcomes will be tremendously better, right? Much less people relying on a pension. That'd be really cool. But by the same token, does that mean you should do nothing if you don't feel comfortable to do two or three or our finances don't allow us to hold two or three? Of course not. And the analogy I love to use here is health and fitness, right? So... You know, I love nerding out on this stuff, Alan, even though I don't look like it. <laughs> so the simple analogy I'd use here is that if we look at the effect of exercise as an example on people's health outcomes, so if we split it into quintiles, right? If we look at the least active to the most active people, split it into five different segments, the biggest impact on reducing your risk of cancer, all-cause mortality, metabolic syndrome, systemic inflammation, everything goes from being totally sedentary to just doing something, right? So just getting your ass off the couch and taking a walk, doing fucking something, right? That's where the majority of benefit comes in. Now, if you don't feel more, more comfortable to do more than one, one investment property, that's fine. If you get mortgage-free in 10 years, you've got the majority of the benefits, right? If you then gain the confidence to do more, great. But if all we can do is one, if that's all that's realistic for your situation, do one. Don't feel the need to do a million at once. It's not realistic for most people. And if that's what actually gets us to do something that helps you and helps change your life, awesome. We're all for it. Yeah. Just just start with one. Take a, take baby steps. Start with one. Get comfortable. 
And it's like riding a bike, you know, once, once you've done it, it's that, you know, you've, you, you know how to do it and then it gets easier and easier. 100%. Just start with one. Don't, don't overthink of it. Don't overthink it. It's already scary enough. Just start with one, take that first step. And you probably say it's not as scary as it seems. And then once you get comfortable with that, who knows, you, you might end up doing more. Exactly. Don't feel the need to become David Goggins tomorrow if we use the fitness analogy, right? But you know, if you do one and you think, hey, you know, I could do a tough mutter, you know, same thing, right? You know, if you do one property and feel now I can do two, awesome, right? Just gain the confidence over time. All right, guys. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Um, we will catch you on the next episode. See you next time, everyone.